I think we have to go into the last bit of the introduction before we finally get to the plays. And I think we need to think about what's happening now in Latin America when the idea of uh, or the promise of Marxism, the promise of equality or economic equality that Marxism offers has been squashed and there is a new kind of order which comes in which we already know about right with uh, Brazil and other Latin American countries getting in to a neoliberal kind of government uh, which we also have in India. Most of the Latin Americans uh, most of Latin America embraced liberal democracy in the 80s and the 90s, but by 1996 only Cuba remained outside the political fold. Some theater practitioners could not cope with the new pluralism after years of rigid regulation. Those who had harbored hopes of popular revolutions despaired as socialism crumbled in Eastern Europe. Other dramatists used the changes and actively supported democratization, uh, usually by turning theatrical spotlights onto the horrors of past military dictatorships, a trend exemplified by Ariel Doffman, Death and the Maiden, a film version of which was directed by Roman Polanski in 1994. Right? So we are talking about a period of time which is important and it is important largely because here we have a question of the Berlin Wall falling. Uh, it's not only the Berlin Wall, but that's a symbol or it's symbolically defined when we say, uh, when we talk about the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, we're talking about all Marxism in uh, or Marxist governments collapsing across Europe, right? And for many years, the United States, with its pro-capitalist understanding of the world, had the idea of the domino effect, right? If one country becomes American, uh, becomes Marxist, according to the Americans, then the other country and another country and another country will go on becoming Marxist. And then at the end of it all, there won't be any uh, capitalist countries left or none of the countries even uh, which are uh, somewhat uh, socialist uh, will uh, leave anything for capitalism at all, right? So that's a kind of position that we must understand. And then the question is, what happens to a government which has produced plays in regimental times, right? I had sent you uh, uh, Ramin uh, Jan Beglu's uh, lecture uh, on the group, and I hope uh, you've read it, and uh, uh, listened to it, and you've read his editorial in today's paper uh, that's talking about Iran and the idea of uh, the COVID-19 when uh, spreading in Iran because of uh, fundamentalist beliefs 
and because of people in spite of restrictions closing down not closing down the mosques right so uh, yeah uh, be that as it may we are talking about irani cinema which is uh, important because in spite of restrictions they produce a lot of good cinema right now what happens when you remove restrictions on uh, on theater right now uh, latin american theater has worked with all the restrictions and has become uh, able to talk about restrictions and that becomes a kind of a force because you're restricted from saying a lot of things and you have to find a way of saying them right so that becomes a big force and a, a big part of latin american theater now the restrictions are suddenly gone the berlin wall is fallen right there is no real restriction over there the only latin american country which has uh, a kind of marxist leaning is cuba right and that's right up till recently and i think even now cuba is still uh, a left wing or a marxist uh, country in many ways right but what is interesting and what i think is important is how do you put up theater when you've been used to one form of governance and you get another form of governance which is totally which removes all the restrictions on you right it's like saying well how do we have a theater when there is no curbs at all or we go back to this example that i gave you from uh, irani cinema especially because with the the curbs on uh, cinema and um, the lack of position that's the lack of free uh, techno technological innovations the idea of uh, if you look at american theater and irani theater how does love happen on the american screen and how does love happen in the uh, in irani cinema right and uh, love happens of course if you see a movie like baran uh, love happens in spite of it being in a poor uh, decrepit condition of people actually on the margins and i think we must see baran sometime and baran is a irani movie which is talking about the marginalized workers and a girl who has to work in a male chauvinist company, uh, country right uh, all all the countries are male chauvinist anyway but it's about a a girl who supplies teeth to the workers right and how does love happen in a marginalized community when this girl is supplying tea to workers dressed up as a boy right so she has to go around as a tea boy otherwise uh, she won't be able to live she won't be able to sell and this is a migrant worker uh, and how the migrant workers actually confront uh, the the patriarchy and another culture right and then that's how she uh, gets to the the work site which is a building a construction site and what is important when we talking about this kind of love happening is it's not the american kind of 
lovemaking scenes that we have and uh, uh, this is with restrictions how do you perform right we might like to go back to english theater and talk about the people who uh, in shakespeare's day for instance who say splud instead of god's blood okay and say mary instead of mary right and no swear words are allowed because of some kind of act that uh, is a blasphemy law and things of that sort and that uh, lasts for a long long time i don't know if they lifted it but uh, what is interesting is uh, of course you can say what you want to say today because the world has changed right but when you talk about iran and you talk about america uh, not latin america but the united states of america you can have a cinema where you have all the nude scenes all the love making scenes all the bedroom scenes all those kind of things are up on the screen right iran can't do that because nobody then you'll have made your private movie right which is and if caught you'll probably be pulled off to jail and maybe even put to death right so uh, that's something that's different and when you have the latin american theater whether it's a cuban theater or any of the new movement uh, uh, theaters right you would normally find that here they mean put up putting up with a lot of restrictions and making statements and uh, yeah the theater is not uh, uh, remotely uh, removed from the political action or the political position and is making political statements and the theater is an educational uh, tool to educate people right and political education is also in a very important part of education according to uh, the person we talked about last time bertolt brecht right the political ignorant is the greatest form of ignorance right so that's what brecht would say right and uh, most of us in many countries of the world many of us are politically ignorant and uh, so i think uh, what is interesting is that when we're talking about latin america the idea of uh, mexico using theater to educate people right the presence of 4000 and odd uh, theaters in one country that's mexico right yeah uh, that is itself something that is very important for us to remember how do we get educated right of course we have means of getting educated uh, which is by political action right and we talked again and again about shahin bagh becoming a, a kind of uh, an education from all the uh, this the clips that we receive on our social media and other posts and also by the when the mainstream media takes up a lot of what has happened in shahin bagh and it's it's almost unbeatable because is taking on the male patriarchy from within the muslim community and it's also taking up all the understandings of uh uh governments which are right wing left of center and right of center because here you have women who are coming out and speaking up for their kind of 
position in the country as women as muslims as marginalized as people who do not have or are going to face a lot of discrimination because of ca nrc and ncp right uh, so i think uh, these are things that we already know right and what is important is how do we get politically educated right and with what happens with the right wing government okay uh, many people go back to the emergency and talk about the emergency as a kind of a horrendous experience that was faced by a lot of people right and people talk about the the declared emergency and the undeclared emergency and the undeclared emergency is something that we still facing right now when the restrictions are removed when you can say what you have to say about a politician or the prime minister or the chief minister or the president or whoever that is right yeah when your uh, your drama your theater can actually speak out and spit at the 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 ultimate persons in power then i think that will be a different kind of a theater which you can get right what happens to a person from uh, a state of prohibition when they go to a state where you don't have prohibition i think that might be a better metaphor to understand what happens with theater of restriction and theater and theater is a freedom right how does a person who doesn't or cannot procure alcohol legitimately right or uh, by the state goes out outside the state where you have free uh, buying and selling and consumption of alcohol right so then uh, there's a kind of discomfort well where are my restrictions gone right am i allowed to do this am i allowed to have a drink is that allowed right so all those kind of things are very important for us right and uh, we see this happening again and again right so so the idea is re removal of restrictions how do you theater act with restrictions and how do your theater go around without restrictions right and that that is exactly what american theater is all about right when we talk about the night of the assassins right and it's put up and it looks as if it's a, a free kind of play right it's free in as much as people are saying what they have to say right and they are also talking about the parents uh the idea of uh murder of the parents or killing of the parents is an idea which has been problematic from the greek times to the present right fatricide matricide uh any of these kind of things are problematic uh in uh in the west in the european kind of conception of the world right and of course the plays in europe are full of all that and the question is how does one deal with it and how does one uh, actually put up right and of course the objections to triana's play is not about uh, patricide or matricide or both of them right but it's talking about 
a symbolic kind of understanding of the world which is considered political and it's against the political uh, establishment over there right so the question is how do i act without restrictions right you can take another example if a person is brought up in a very conservative kind of family with all the restrictions around them right and they go to a, a place where there's almost no restriction right i think the best example is kafka's america right where he's he's talking about a person who goes to america and actually has all the freedom but he's not able to survive with all that freedom right so a, a good idea uh, taking from john beglu's uh, uh speech right is to read kafka and as latin american people or students who are reading latin american literature we should also read kafka because a lot of people are latin americans uh, acknowledge that they've uh, written their fiction uh, and a lot of painters also have acknowledged kafka in the idea of magical realism and when you look at the techniques of kafka uh, which are surreal uh you will get that and many of them in what you call uh latin american literature mm, yeah of course i think that what happens and what is what we've read just now out of uh sebastian dogat's introduction has talked about this idea of talking and showing uh past military dictatorships and talking about how life exists in past military dictatorships which is something that comes and is a part of what you have uh, after all these uh, uh governments change the thematic concerns shifted with the times issues such as class conflict military oppression revolution and us imperialism no longer excited dramatist as they had done in the 60s and the 70s the focus moved from the socio political to the interpersonal concentrating on themes of sexuality gender personal identity and the influence of the mass media as reflected in the plays of fuente uh, vargas llosa in this volume right so we have a different kind of uh situation right and is talking about uh not socio political but interpersonal right and it's talking about gender it's talking about sexuality the personal identity of a person now those things are something that makes the distinctiveness of the idea of latin america uh, perhaps a little different right and uh, the idea is how do you look at latin american literature with its huge kind of uh pre european background then you have the european background then you have uh, oh, the the colonial background going away and you have uh, the politically post colonial background but it's still uh and the post colonial subjects which it still is right and then you get the idea of the military juntas the the marxist uh, dictatorships you have a lot of repression 
and a lot of uh, violence, physical violence, right? So all those things are part of uh, a lot of Latin American drama. And then you get the idea of uh, a modern state, a liberalized modern neo-capitalist state and the concerns that we were we have talked about in the dispatches are not really the concerns anymore. The concerns are very uh, tamed now because uh, it's a liberal democracy or it's supposed to be liberal, right? And what happens is uh, this, uh, uh, they show the, the past regimes in a bad light, which is fine uh, if it's a kind of a document, right, about what happened in the past regimes and how freedom was uh, not available to them. Right? Uh, yeah. Now, Carlos Fuente was born in Mexico City in 1929, grew up in Washington, D.C. and studied at universities in Mexico and Switzerland. He was an extraordinary polymath, a highly acclaimed novelist, writer of screenplays, editor, historian, political thinker, teacher and ambassador for his country. The first of his three plays, All the Cats Are Lame, uh, is a complex socio-historical portrayal of the Spanish invasion of Mexico, revolving around the conflict between the Aztecs leader Montezuma II and the Hernan and Hernan Cortes. The Blind Man is King, that's 1970, concerns a blind lady and a blind servant who await the return of the lady's husband, both of them terrified that the other has sight. Yeah. Now the question is, uh, right, and the other is, who is the other? So the idea is the blind man is king and who is the blind man, right? That's a question, right? Because normally you have the idea of the one-eyed, the one-eyed jack becomes the king when you have a lot of blind people around. And this is definitely political because you're talking about the blind man being king, right? And well, we don't really know how it works, but we must read the play and see what happens. The third play, Orchards, Orchards in the Moonlight, is a stunning portrayal of the intricacies of family fantasies and the impact of the moving image, right? Yes, yeah, so that's the next play. Uh, Yossa was born in Aquipia, Peru in 1936. He spent his first years in Bolivia where his grandfather was a diplomat and later studied law at the University of San Marcos in Lima, right? That's one of the most uh, early kind of universities that happen in Latin America. Like Paz, Paz and Fuente, he had many professional identities, novelist, critic, essayist, TV journalist, the Peruvian presidential candidate. He was, he had written five plays to date. He, yeah, no copy survives of El Inca, his first play, which he wrote while studying in Peru. His second, written some 25 years later, is The Young Lady from Tacna, uh, a dramat uh, that's 1981, a dramatization of the process of storytelling. It was followed by Kathy and he, 
uh, hippo, uh, I'm the Hippopotamus, a comedy about a Parisian housewife who hires a writer to record her invented memories. Mistress of Desires was written two years later. The madman of the balconies tells the story of an old professor whose obsession with preserving the colonial balconies of Lima drives his beloved daughter to desert him. An interesting parallel to the storyline of Paz's Rappuccini's daughter. Okay, so we have Yossa, and Yossa is also giving us a lot of very interesting uh, kind of plays, right? And he's also one of the very important people who also gets a Nobel Prize rather recently, like Paz, right? And uh, we have him being from Peru, right? And uh, yeah, that's of course a place uh, where you have the uh, the the dictatorship, right? Uh, and the kind of totalitarian uh, brutality that you have, right? And uh, here you have all these kinds of plays that come out of all all this. Uh, world that we are living, yeah, and of course you have this idea of il inca, el inca. That is, we're talking about the incas, yeah. That is, one is talking about storytelling, right, and uh, right, and a Parisian housewife who hires a writer. So two are actually talking about memories. The idea of memories, the role of memories, the role of memories and the idea of uh, telling a story and how telling a story and the oral uh, kind of uh, method of telling stories preserves remnants of a culture which is already past and there is no written record of it. right? And uh, that kind of going back is extremely important given the kind of uh, history we have of Latin America. And we must remember the we and Latin America are, were colonized, right? The idea of the local culture is overrun uh, quite a lot. And a lot of their culture gets uh, supplanted with European culture. So, uh, El Inca, which of course uh, is probably lost, right, is not available, but the idea of more storytelling and the idea of dreams being uh, recorded, right, uh, yeah, so Mistress of Desires was written two years later, The Madam of the Balconies is another Madman of the Balconies is about, uh, yeah, so if you've read Rappuccini's Daughter, the balcony becomes very, very important. Of course, balconies become suddenly important with COVID-19, uh, yeah, COVID-19, right? And um, that's extremely important because why is the balcony so important today? Because we can't show ourselves anywhere else. And if you don't have a balcony, you can't come out and uh, light lamps and cheer 
and sing, and that's what in Europe the balcony becomes important for. In India, of course, it's to dine talis and to light dias, right? But uh, that's different, and that's because of the COVID again, and different countries are looking at it from different manners. Now, when we talk about Fuente, he's Mexican. When we're talking about Yosa, uh, he, though he was born in Peru, I think uh, he's talked about as Colombian, right? Yeah. The, uh, the self-searching that preoccupied dramatists like Yosa and Fuente in the 80s and the 90s marked a change in the nature of autonomous theater. The use of anthropology as a method of exploring both personal and cultural identity proved to be a rich new source of inspiration. There was an, this was encouraged by the activities of three European-based institutions, Eugenio uh, Baba's International School from, of Theatre Anthropology, which was followed in Denmark, founded in Denmark, Jerzy uh, Grotowski's uh, Laboratory Theatre in Poland, uh, and Peter Brooks International Center of Recreation Theatre Research in France. Many Latin Americans read about or worked at these establishments and then developed their own related ideas, right? So now it's going back to Europe in a post-colonial and a post-liberal and a neoliberal world and going back to Europe and trying to learn and use what Europe can give in a kind of an equal way, right? And culturally, how you learn uh, modern forms of drama, yeah, Grotowski's and uh, all these other people, right? Uh, actually are talking about modern ideas of theater, right? Uh, many Latin Americans read about or worked at these establishments and they developed their own related ideas. The Cuban theater group Teatro Bundia placed anthropology at the center of its rehearsal method. Okay, so the idea is going to uh, anthropology and talking about how different cultures are different, how does race develop, because anthropology is a subject which comes out of race theory uh, or is associated with race theory and is also talking about uh, the question of colonization. Without colonization, would you have a developed subject like anthropology? During its investigation into the Afro-Cuban re religion of Santeri, the, the group found that the rhythms of the bata drums, which San Santeria, Santeria believers considered to be the intermediaries, uh, the intermediaries between humans and divine can induce a state of trance. Right now, they're going back to local culture, they're going back to local cult uh, customs, and they're talking about the idea of the drums talking to the the divinity of God, whatever, because they believe in that. Right, and of course, you have the drums induing, inducing a state of trance, which we also have in India, right? Uh, the dance and the drums, you get a state of trance. Okay, now that's an important technique where they go back to this anthropological past where this was something that was native 
to a lot of people, right? Yeah, and that's a lot of, is native to a lot of us, right? Uh, yeah, you can uh, maybe go to Siddhapur in Gujarat and you see a lot of these things happening. The group now uses trance as a preparation technique for creating a forum of theater that is both in close contact with its own cultural roots. The, the group now uses trances as a preparation technique for creating a form of theatre that is both in close contact with its own cultural roots and which can communicate successfully across national boundaries as demonstrated in the critical and public acclaim that greeted its tours in Europe and the Far East in the 1990s. Right? So when we talk about uh, this kind of trance and trance becoming a form being a part of the form of a religious uh, kind of practice, a, re a religious ritual. Now, it goes back to the idea of theater as a ritual or theater ha having uh, religious and ritualistic elements, right, which we also use. Uh, rituals, as we know, are something that we can't get rid of because we as human beings have a number of rituals, like for instance, when somebody comes uh, to your door, you either you normally say, please come in, how are you, right? Okay, or you meet somebody in the morning, you say good morning or good evening or good night or came to or whatever that is, right? So, we are, we are bound, as human beings, we are bound by rituals, right? And at one point of time in Europe, rituals were considered bad, right? and they tried to get rid of all the religious rituals, but they came back again to the religious rituals when they came in contact with Osho in Pune, right? So Osho would induct them into rituals and rituals suddenly became very, very meaningful to them, right? The idea is you all indulge in rituals. Some of them are meaningful, some of them are meaningless, right? To say hello to somebody may be meaningful or maybe it's a meaningless ritual, but it's a ritual to show that you are at least polite, right? You might hate my guts, as most of you do, right? But at the same time, if you meet me on the road, you'll say, hello, how are you? Or uh, good morning, or good evening, or something of the sort, right? And that might be a polite hypocrisy, as all politeness is hypocrisy, right? But it's also a ritual, and uh, how we establish contact without saying good morning or good evening, right? So these are contact makers, as we call it in uh, linguistics. So we talk about contact makers, where we say, hello, how are you? And contact breakers, I think we've talked enough. Now let's stop. That's a contact breaker, right? So a few of these anthropological projects have resulted in written text, the Mexican uh, Compania National the Teatro collaborated with the playwright uh, Sergio Magana to record The Enemies 1990. The extraordinary text portrays the attempts of the 19th century priest Charles Bressor to stage the rabbinical Aki. The story begins just after Bressor's first transcription of the piece from oral tradition. Proud of his work, Brasso wants to see the play staged 
in an authentic way as opposed to the folkloric representation of the time. The Indians refuse to participate un until he agrees to pay them and to allow the performance to be staged. In the nave of the local church, the Indians then perform an authentic version of the rabbinal uh, arche, which ends in this actual sacrifice of the actor playing the cliché warrior on the church altar. Appalled by what he was, he had done, uh, Brasso flees the village while the locals honor the sacrificial actor. The production was based on extensive anthropological research into the dress, music, dance, and gestural language both of the 19th century and of the rabbinal, rabbinal itself and on European understanding and portrayal of the Mayans. The story was told through the eyes of Brasso, a European, so that the rituals took on an exotic and primitive qual quality. For the, the mainly Mexican audience, it was only authentic in the sense that it depicted the ways Europeans perceived indigenous cultures. Right? Now the whole idea of authenticity itself has gone away because these are religions and customs which are already defunct but they remain in the memories of people or in the stories that they tell and that's how they remember that these were the religions and these are the rituals that were around and we might like to look at the fact that the actor is actually taken to the church altar and put to death. Right? So this idea of ritual acting or ritual drama to talk about the death of somebody and the actual killing of a person, that's a, again a very important kind of uh, Latin American echo of the Latin American past. Some of the work that has come out of anthropological research can be properly described as postmodern. Right now, we're talking about Latin, the uh, Latin American theater as postmodern drama. Postmodern, modernism, according to Jean Francois Lyotard, who coined this, the term, means a skeptical attitude towards overarching explanations of the world. Right now, we have things like the mega narrative. Okay, or we have the grand narrative, right? So we have a grand narrative of history, which our friends talk about in different terms. Like for instance, in India, we have this idea of the Akhand Bharat, right? Which is a kind of India from the past to an India from, to in the, into the future, right? And that kind of Akhand Bharat is exactly what you call a grand narrative, which doesn't fit into a post-colonial, uh, a post-modern kind of narrative, because you have different histories coming up. You have little histories which do not actually get into the mega or the meta narrative, okay, or the mega narrative, which is uh, very, very ancient and goes right. The, the whole span of time is uh, too large to contain a lot of small histories which produce a lot of changes in the culture that is old, right? So we can't, we can't really 
uh, clap on with that kind of meta narrative. So many people would like to think of India as postmodern without having modernism in the same way that the Europeans had it, right? You talk about different cultures, different customs, different sub customs, right? And in that way, uh, we are uh, thought of as postmodern, right? Yeah, so that is something that we have to think about. Uh, in the theatre, this skepticism is directed at a universalizing, uh, at any universalizing theories of drama, such as the Christians or the socialist suggestions that theatre should be used as a tool for social change. Right. So we had two groups of people. One is the Christians who thought about educating people. Right. Yeah. So that's one. The missionaries who talked about educating people, and they actually went into what you call social change because cannibalism was something that they abhorred or they were shocked at uh, killing of the babies of uh, African, uh, Latin American uh, native people, right, by themselves, right, was again something that was very problematic, right. So how do you look at this idea of using the theatre as a means of social change or education, right? And uh, this was what happened also with the socialists. And we talked about Mexico and we talked about Cuba, right? Where theatre is used as an expression of social change and is actually trying to document how people change with different kinds of governments, etc. Yeah. Uh, Postmodernism uh, or the Aristotelian notion that the effective drama can only be produced if the unities of time, place and action are maintained, right? So that's actually neoclassical, right? Where it talks about time, place and action and they're talking about the neoclassical drama, the classical drama, whichever one you want to call it, right? So these are things that changed over here because they are they're talking against universality and they're talking uh, and postmodernism, as you already know, uh, post-structuralism, postmodernism is not about talking about the universal structures. And what has interestingly happened is history also has to be written differently because those kinds of understanding of history are not even uh, modern, right? Uh, the idea of uh, history is a, itself a modern construct, but postmodernism does away with these kinds of ideas of the grand narrative, etc. Right? So I think one of the important things is the plays also are not using looking at the universalist, but they're looking at little, small uh, kinds of cultures all around the place. Postmodernism is also characterized by linguistic playfulness and by referentiality, which tends to mean multiple quotations from other texts, genres, and from the works themselves, right? So when we're talking about postmodernity in, uh, in literature, we're talking about uh, ling linguistic playfulness, autoreferentiality, uh, that's, that's what you call metalinguistic, meta metadramatic, all those kinds of forms are what you already see in the plays. So, quotations from other texts, genres, and from the works themselves, right? So, you quote that this is, you might have in, in the production of Evita, 
they actually had uh, Indira Gandhi was still alive, right? Uh, and they had uh, this kind of economic depression that hits uh, Peronist of Argentina, right? And a quotation which comes up on the wall is uh, Indira Gandhi says, there's no substitute for hard work, right? And the year where Indira Gandhi pronounces it comes up because of what we call uh, a projector, right? And that's projected on the wall while the trauma is continuing, right? So you have, uh, first of all, these technological developments, and then you have the idea of uh, actually uh, quoting somebody else, okay? And you have all those kind of things happening. If you've seen uh, there's a movie called, I forgot what the name of the movie is. Yeah, it's a, uh, no, I, I can't get the name of the movie, right? Yeah, but uh, what, what happens is they have a Bollywood number in a Western movie, right? And uh, yeah, I, I forgot the name of the movie. It's called, uh, yeah, I don't know what the name is, right? But, uh, yeah, I, I, if I get it back, I'll, I'll say it again. Uh, okay. Uh, 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 so you have a bit of another play, right? And everybody can recognize it as such. Okay. And you have a bit of the, the work itself and you can recognize that they're playing a bit of the same work, right? Uh, this is something that you'll find in uh, Night of the Assassins. Right? They're role-playing other people, they're role-playing themselves, they're role-playing the government, right? And that's why perhaps the, uh, the play gets into so much trouble. Yeah, though it shouldn't because it's rather abstract. Yes, a good example of the postmodern Latin American play is a time ball by the, Ju by the Cuban Joel Cano. His... Uh, his mosaic-like work shows radical skepticism towards the theatrical norm, right? So when we talk his mosaic-like work, we're talking about the idea of the episodic. And if you remember the image in the stamp album of the fish, which each of the scales is one stamp, right? So that's the kind of understanding we get over here. Uh, instead of a logical narrative progression, there are 52 scenes which must be shuffled before each performance so that they will always be presented in a different order. Cano describes the genre as theatrical fortune telling, right? We must remember that Rappuccini's daughter by Paz is one of these things which shows the tarot card. But the idea is you shift or you shuffle the cards and 52, uh, so you have 52 packs of cards, uh, 52 cards, right? So you shuffle them up and that's why you have 52 seeds, right? Now this is again an old kind of metaphor, right? We remember when we are talking about uh, way of the world, the, the game is, is begins with, a, with a, uh, the, the play begins with a game in the, in the chocolate room and the chocolate house. 
where you have a pack of cards and the, the game is the play is considered a game uh, and um, the way of, this is the way of the world and uh, every the play is a game and it's repeated again and again right so that's one of the plays which is uh, actually uh, showing us this idea of shuffling uh, this idea of the play being considered a game but this idea of shuffling and having what is the last scene first and the first scene last all those kind of actions are very interesting because when you put up a play and we, when, when we have practice you might have the last scene acted and practice first and you might have the first scene acted last right so that's in a practice right suppose you put the play up just like that right and you uh, so what will be the sequence what will be any kind of sequence and the play is written in such a way that you can shuffle the scenes and each is what would be typically Brechtian, even more Brechtian than Brecht, because it's absolutely episodic, right? Uh, the play contains many cultural references, including appearances by Charlie Chaplin, John Lennon, Lennon, Marilyn Monroe, Cano itself. Yeah, I must uh, actually send you a picture and I will send it to you on the room, right? And you have to look at, uh, you have to look at the picture and you have to say, who is there in the picture, right? And the picture is very interesting. You have Abraham Lincoln, you have Marx there, you have Lenin there, uh, you have Hitler there, you have Mussolini there, you have hundreds of other people, Wagner. You have all these kinds of people around the place and you have to identify them, yeah? And that becomes interesting, right? So, uh, so the idea is the how do you shuffle them up? How do you understand the cultural references, right? And uh, in fact, there's a Latin American play, I'm sorry, I can't give you the name, uh, which we did when we were doing, I was doing an FBI course, right? Where you have, uh, you have this, this story, and this is a very, very old, uh, uh, rather old kind of a movie from Latin America, where you have this man, called Jack Kuriak, who is part of the Beat generation, right? And he actually appears as himself in the in, in the cinema, right? In the in the movie, right? So that's something that we have also over here in the play, right? Okay? And of course you have Charlie Chaplin and all the other people appearing as roles in the play, right? But the question is what happens? If the real person acts as himself, right? Now that's something to be thought about when we're talking about uh, Night of the Assassins. What happens if I act as myself? What happens if I act as somebody else? And what happens when this kind of acting changes, right? And how does the audience identify me, right? As being different? What do I do to change and show myself as a different person? Or that I'm acting another role and I haven't changed my costumes, but I've acted, I'm acting a, another role. I'm talking as if I was another person, right? Uh, Tocho, whatever those names are, right? Yeah. So, Cano uh, also expresses an ironic attitude towards the dramatic unities 
setting the play in 1933-1970 and no time and ordering the action between a stable, a park, a circus and a stadium. Right? Now the action, so the idea is the very stylized kind of uh, squashing of the, uh, the unity of time, place and action. The stable, a park, a circus and a stadium, that's in itself not even a problem because of uh, because that's where the shift of scene takes place when we talk about Shakespeare's plays and after. But the idea of 1933 and 1970, if you play the 1971st and the 1933 uh, later, then what will happen is you'll get a kind of an anachronistic scene, right? Like for instance, if you have seen Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1, uh, you have a scene where you have a slave market, right? And the slave market is in, uh, maybe in, uh, in BCE, somewhere in the BCE, right? And here, this African-American man, first of all, there were no African-Americans at that point in time, right? There were Africans, but no African-Americans. He's going to the slave market and he's got a TV, uh, he's got a transit, uh, uh, a tape recorder, right? Which I don't know if you all have seen, uh, a cassette tape recorder, which is playing funky time, right? So the cassette tape recorder comes only in 1970, right? And you're going back to an earlier slave market where people are bought and sold and you're talking about a modern electronic item and you're playing a modern song which comes up in the 80s perhaps. Funky Town and all that comes up maybe even after the 80s, right? Uh, yeah, so somewhere, it, no, so it's the, the movie itself is there. So yes, 70s, 80s, right? So you can maybe, uh, and of course, this is not anything new, but it's talking about anachronism, except that you can shuffle the scenes up and one scene can come first and one scene can come second. And they shuffle it up on the card on the on the stage to show you that they're changing scenes and they're changing the sequence because the idea is oh, there is a scene of no time or timelessness or an eternal scene and even that is between all these years, right? In the 1990s, Latin America once again flourished as a rich seabed for exciting new plays, but the region's theatre also faces enormous problems. As in most parts of the world, no problem is more acute than the shortage of funding. In the 80s and 90s, governments cut back finances for the theatre, especially for training. It is difficult for a Latin American playwright to make a living as runs are short and uh, revenues divided many ways. Financial temptations lure many good writers into television and to rich pastures in Europe or the United States. In addition, Latin American audiences remain generally conservative in their taste and a playwright devoted to non-commercial or autonomous theater always risks alienating the very people whose material support he depends on. Economic self-censorship has, at the end of the 20th century, taken the place of the almost extinct direct political censorship of the theatre, right? Now, what happens is, 
uh, today we are in a market driven society right and uh, we will all remember that when we're talking about this economy plays a big role and we are talking about how theaters are not funded right i remember when we put up a play uh, somebody actually had a problem with me because i said look the students need a vada pav and a chai every day so i'm going to pay for it because we don't have funds and the 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 play was put up without having any funds and at the end uh, uh, another person came in and had a had collections a collection made and approached people to have funding done right so all these things are huge problems that we face right so anybody who's taken part in a play will know that funding is a very huge problem that we have right and one of the things that happens to latin american theater is when it's funded it's also the people the person who's paying for it right is the one who's who kind of deals with the the politics right and the political and the idea of the payment uh, again is very important and that makes a lot of plays uh lose their kind of uh charm or they are not put up at all because of lack of funding and if you talk against the person who's funding you how much would that work right maybe humorously it would work if the person funding has got a good kind of humor right it's almost like amitabh ghosh's uh uh writing this book on um, the glass ceiling right yeah i think it's the glass ceiling right uh, one of the books right yeah so uh he criticizes in the book he criticizes the british council and all those kind of things but then he goes and says something else outside right and i think alister uh nevin yeah uh is uh, the person who uh who's a head of the british council or the director or something of that sort he actually says well the book is actually a critique of the british council and uh all the uh, the policies of the british right and there was no need of unnecessarily talking outside the book the book would have done its own work right yeah so that's the kind of uh, problems that we have okay so we'll conclude this and we'll move into uh night of the assassins in the next uh, podcast that we have thank you